Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hello, I'm Susan Violante. I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to be speaking on the phone with Emilio Corsetti III, author of Scapegoat, A Flight Crew's Journey from Heroes to Villains to Redemption. It is the story of TWA 841 Flight's sudden dive incident investigation and its pilot, Decades Battle, to clear his name. But before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Emilio Corsetti. Emilio Corsetti III is a professional pilot and author. Emilio has written for both regional and national publications, including the Chicago Tribune, Multimedia Producer, and Professional Pilot Magazine. Emilio's first book, 35 Miles from Shore, The Ditching and Rescue of ALM Flight 980, tells the true story of an airline ditching in the Caribbean Sea and the efforts to rescue those who survived. Emilio is a graduate of St. Louis University. He and his wife, Lynn, reside in Dallas, Texas. Scapegoat is his second book. For more information on Emilio and his books, visit his website at www.emiliocorsetti.com and that is Emilio C-O-R-S-E-T-T-I dot com. Hi, Emilio. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks. Thank you for being with us. I'm actually really excited about this interview because I am a, what you call a passenger nightmare on any flight. Oh, okay. <laughs> so talking about skateboard, it, it kind of brings back a lot of fears and memories that I have about airplanes, but it's such a thrilling nonfiction, basically which is hard to find, and our reviewer loved it, and so I'm really excited to be here and look forward to learning more about your book. Same here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a uh, professional pilot. It's my full-time job, and uh, I started flying when I was 15. In fact, I had my, I soloed uh, before I had my driver's license, and uh, I've been flying ever since. I've done all types of flying from charter to corporate to air taxi aerial photography, uh, air ambulance, a regional airline, and uh, now I'm with a major airline. I was employed as a pilot for a regional airline. I started writing for an aviation publication. So that's where I started my, my writing career. And uh, But that type of writing was often geared towards advertising. Mm-hmm. The publisher would want to me to cover a story about a, a new product or a new company or and it just wasn't appealing to me, so uh, I stopped doing that, and I, I switched over to uh, writing books. For uh audience, we're speaking with Emilio Corsetti, and he's the author of Scapegoat, A Flight Crew's Journey from Heroes to Villain to Redemption. Emilio, what compelled you to write Scapegoat? You obviously love flying in airplanes of different kinds, and you're working for an airline. This is such a, I would think, touchy topic to write if you're part of an airline why did you decide to write about this? Well, I write nonfiction, so I'm always looking for compelling stories. First of all, writing a book takes a lot of work, and it takes a long time. Uh, my first book took five years from uh, I, initial idea to getting it out into the market. This book was a lot quicker. See, I, I started this process in November 2012 and, and published in August of 2016, so a little over three and a half years or so. My first book was also aviation-related, uh, and that uh, dealt with the first uh, ditching of a, a commercial jet. But that doesn't mean that I was specifically looking for an aviation story. You know, you always hear the 
the rule that you should write what you know. And obviously, as a pilot, I, I know mm-hmm. this this business in this industry. But uh, to me, uh, as a reader, I I read on so many different topics in nonfiction. Uh, you take a, a writer like Laura Hillebrand. You know, she writes Sea Biscuit, which is about horse racing, which I had no interest in, but I love the book and the movie. And then she comes out with Unbroken. None of those two books have anything in common except for the fact that they're true, compelling stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm always looking for that, a compelling story. And this particular one uh, actually came a, about as a result of the film Flight, starring Denzel Washington. Uh, are you familiar with that film? Yes. Have yes. you seen it? I watched it, um, I think it was on HBO last year with my mom. Was okay. it? A lot of people who aren't in the aviation industry really like the film. Uh, but those of us in the aviation industry um, dislike the film because of the many inaccuracies uh, that the film portrayed. There is just really no excuse for them to make so many mistakes. And so I went on a online forum to see what other people were, were saying about it, and it was pretty much universal uh, opinion that, that they got too many things wrong. But in doing that, I came across a post about TWA 41 and how – the person who wrote the post said they should have told the story of TWA-41. And uh, just so your listeners, uh, I'll just give a brief introduction of what the, what happened on this flight. It was a Boeing 727. It was April 4th, 1979. The flight was leaving from JFK to Minneapolis, Minnesota. had uh, 89 total souls on board. As it crossed over uh, Lake Huron into Michigan, uh, the captain noticed a slight vibration in the ball of his feet. He also noticed something weird going on with the control yoke and the autopilot. So he moved his seat up, he disconnected the autopilot, and seconds later the uh, plane rolled over, did a complete 360-degree roll, started into a, a second 360-degree roll, but instead entered a vertical dive, and rotating it uh, wow. two to three times every 15 seconds or so. So it's diving down towards the ground. And uh, they're trying everything. They're trying to reverse the controls. They're trying to pushing and pulling on the control yoke, and nothing is working. And they're running out of time. I mean, they're they're actually descending at 40,000 feet a minute. From an altitude of 39,000 feet, it's actually less than one minute, or just about one minute. Wow. And about 15,000 feet, uh, they decide to extend the landing gear. When they put the landing gear out, um, there's this loud explosion. The rotation of the plane stops, and the pilot is able to regain control of the plane. And he pulls it out of the dive within literally hundreds of feet above the ground, wow. saving everybody on board. And so the subtitle, From Heroes to Villains, concerns the fact that, like Sullenberger in the book and film Sully, this crew was recognized as heroes nationally, worldwide, really, uh, as word got out about what had happened. I actually remember this news, um, and I was uh, I was living in Venezuela, by the way. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's surprising that that you would have heard it then, but uh, I I heard it too. I was also I was just starting my career at that time, so I was following this as well. Well, three days into the investigation, first of all, it was the NTSB treated it as an incident and not an accident. One, they pulled the airplane out of the dive. Two, there were no injuries, serious injuries, and there was just damage to the aircraft. So 
They didn't put a lot of emphasis in this investigation. In fact, they gave it to the field office in Chicago to do the investigation. Three days into the investigation, they discovered that 21 minutes of the 30-minute cockpit voice tape recorder had been erased. So right from that moment on, suspicion fell on the crew. First of all, a plane at cruise is one of the safest portions of a flight. In fact, only 8% of accidents occur during cruise. So it's very unusual for something to happen in cruise. Mm -hmm. The fact that you had that unusual incident combined with the erasure of the CVR led the investigators to believe that the, the crew had done something to cause the incident. So at that point, the NTSB in Washington decided to get involved. They reassigned the investigation and uh, they actually did a, a public, televised public hearing eight days after the accident, which is unprecedented. It has never happened before. It has never happened since. But they grilled the three flight crew members in a televised deposition eight days after the accident. And it was apparent immediately that they felt that the crew was involved and the focus was on the erasure of the CVR. So that's how they went from heroes to villains. They were receiving all kinds of requests, especially the captain, mm -hmm. for media interviews, newspaper, magazine, uh, national news, even uh, a Hollywood film producer. And they went from that to being villains uh, in the public eye as the investigation proceeded. And then two years after the incident, the NTSB came out and officially blamed the crew for causing the incident. And they, they came up with this really bizarre theory of what they felt that the crew did, and they stuck with it. And uh, that's why this book is very much like a criminal investigation. Mm -hmm. If anybody follows wrongful convictions, uh, which I do, and that's another reason why this, this story appealed to me. First of all, I, I like the aviation aspect of it, but I really like the, the uh, wrongful conviction aspect of it. Two years after the incident, the NTSB blames the crew. And me, as a pilot coming up through the ranks, I had heard what the NTSB was alleging the crew had done. And I just assumed that, well, those guys have are definitely lost their jobs because no airline would continue to employ pilots that caused the near crash and then tried to cover it up by erasing the CVR. Yeah. So this, when I looked into what had happened, I found out that not only were they not fired, but they were promoted on schedule, and the airline itself filed a petition against the NTSB to have it, the investigation reinvestigated. So now we have two compelling stories. We have the NTSB and Boeing's theory of what happened, and then we have another theory that was actually developed eight years after the... Well, I take that back. See, this happened in 79, and the new theory came out in 84, but wasn't really put forward until 87. So eight years after the incident, a new theory about what had happened was proposed to the NTSB. And what I do is I present the facts and I present what Boeing and the NTSB said happened and then I present what the new theory is 
based on the evidence, and then I let the reader draw their own conclusion of, of whose theory is, is mm-hmm. correct. What have you learned in your research that jumped at you, that changed your mind or enriched in any way the opinion you have? Good question. Like I said, I had always heard the NTSB and, and Boeing theory, and I just I just believed it. But when I found out that this crew had not been front-fired and that there was this petition for reconsideration, the first thing I did was I went online and I read the petition for reconsideration, and there's links on my website to that. It's online. And uh, right away I, I saw where there was evidence pointing to the fact that you know, maybe the NTSB and, and Boeing had gotten it wrong. And so my next step was to, to track down the captain, which I w- was fortunate enough to be able to do. Then I flew down to Vegas, and I interviewed him for three days. And I think it's actually a wonderful thing that you got on your book trailer. And, again, I want to tell our audience that you have to check up um, this book. It's Scapegoat, and you can check out the book trailer as well at his website at emiliocorsetti.com. And that is E-M-I-L-I-O-C-O-R-S-E-T-T-I dot com. I love that book trailer, by the way. It really intrigued me. And just by looking at that interview that you just spoke about made me want to read the book. Yeah, thanks for the comments about the, the book trailer because uh, I really do think the book trailer is effective because it encapsulizes the entire story in, in less than three minutes. And, you know, there was a lot of time and effort that went into that. I did videotape all the interviews that I did. My first book, I recorded all of the interviews. And the reason, part of it is, number one, I'm a terrible note taker. Number two, I'm writing nonfiction. You know, if there was a lawsuit to come at any point in the in the future, I want to be able to go to a recording and say, here, this is what was said. So I, I can back it up with, with facts. And this is actually an awesome tip for all of us writers that write uh, historical books. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely recommend. Well, the other thing was when I started this book, I actually I was so interested in the story and I thought it was so compelling that I thought it was it could be a documentary, and I wanted to make a documentary along with the book. So that was another reason why I started videotaping. Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life, experience, as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts, as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Emilio Corsetti III, author of Scapegoat, A Flight Crew's Journey from Heroes to Villains to Redemption. Stay tuned because we are going to continue this fun, interesting, revealing, and thought-provoking conversation with Emilio about being a pilot and flying, writing investigative nonfiction, factual versus creative historical writing, what he learned from his research for Scapegoat, self-publishing versus independent publish, and so much more. 
But in the meantime, you can check out Emilio's book by visiting his website at www.emiliocorsetti.com. And that is Emilio, C-O-R-S-E-T-T-I.com. I soon learned that I can write a book by myself, but there's no way that I can do a documentary by myself mm-hmm. because of the fact that I'm traveling all over the country. There's all kinds of equipment involved in videotaping. There's the video, the camera, the tripod, the, the cables, the sound, the lighting. All of that has to be set up. You have to have experience in videography to do a professional job, and I lacked all of those skills. Mm-hmm. So what I decided to do is record and videotape the interviews so that I can still go back and I can look at it. And the other thing, too, with videotaping the interviews is I was able to put excerpts of my videotapes interviews as I was progressing through the book. I would post those on my website. So anybody that was following the progress of the book could go on my website and they would learn when there was a new video out. And people still go to my website and do a category search on TWA41, uh, or maybe it's Scapegoat. Now I made a change it to Scapegoat. And they can go through the whole progress of the book from the very first interview, and that interview that's on the trailer was done in that first three days that I went to Las Vegas. Wow, that's awesome. And that's in your website? That's on, All of those are on my website. And again, to our listeners, EmilioCorsetti.com, and that is E-M-I-L-I-O. C-O-R-S-E-T-T-I dot com. So after the interview I went to, when I went to Las Vegas and I interviewed Hoot uh, Gibson, who was the captain, uh, I came back and I still wasn't sure that I was going to write the book because so much time had passed and I, I wasn't totally sold on it. But what happened was when I got back, the captain had sent me four cartons of documents. And inside those cartons were thousands of pages of documents that he had kept from early on in the investigation all the way through to petitions of reconsideration. And by painstakingly going through those documents that he provided, I was able to reconstruct the story from start to finish and adding on to that with the interviews that I did, over 25 interviews, videotaped interviews, I was able to put together these two opposing views of what happened. And the end result, I think, is a very compelling story, unlike anything that is out there, simply because this book challenges the work of a trusted government agency, the NTSB, and a major corporation, Boeing. And if I'm going to do that, I have to have my ducks in a row. And I do believe that anybody who reads the evidence and goes through this book will come to the same conclusion that I did. It's amazing that this must be really compelling to everybody that like um, investigation, um, period, because it is very difficult to get an interview with the um, protagonist, let's call them, of, of what was going on in history, because it is a historical moment. But to get the documents, copies of the documents, and put it all together in a nonfiction book is awesome. But I wonder, you said, for example, you thought about a documentary. I write historical books, too, but I, I kind of fictionalize them. So I write a creative history more than facts. What compels you to choose the fact version of a history book or the factual tale? What compels you to write 
the facts this way instead of in a vivid story. Okay. Well, I'll say right off the bat that writing nonfiction narrative is more work than writing fiction. I agree. It's That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. But as a reader, I read almost exclusively nonfiction. Oh, um, nonfiction stories, they just draw me in and they stay with me long after I've read the book because I know that the information that's in that book is true. Every bit of it is true. The characters are true. They're real people. I still don't understand why people think that nonfiction is dry or nonfiction is, you know, you're being taught something. This is real life. This is a story that happened to real people. The, the lives of this crew was affected forever after this incident. And one other thing about this being nonfiction that's unlike anything that else that's out on the market, a lot of nonfiction is very short on dialogue. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's short on dialogue is because the writer doesn't want to, to say what is in somebody's mind. Once you start making up dialogue, it's no longer nonfiction, right? Mm-hmm. It becomes yeah, fiction. Well, this book, because the captain kept all these documents, I had thousands of pages of depositions and trials. There was a four-week civil trial involved. The investigative uh, committees, the Alpha Union uh, memos and letters, and I'm able to actually put in what was said at various points in this investigation. I'm not making it up. It's all documented. And so there is probably 80% more dialogue in this book than you will find in any nonfiction book. And it's all because it was uh, documented. It shows also on your website, under book trailer, there's clips of the newspaper that states the, the crew right. gets blamed for the jets driving. At the same time, we have the captain live uh, on that interview in there. I like to read nonfiction a lot as well. When I decided to fictionalize my, my books, on, I write a lot about World War II. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I fictionalize it because when I read narrations, I actually see it as a movie in my head. And so when I'm writing um, from my father's tapes, basically, because he grew up in World War II, then I see it as a movie, and it just came natural to me to kind of fictionalize and imagine the dialogue and, and all that stuff. So it is true. It is easier. And even though I have to do a lot of research to make it believable, it is impossible for me to just imagine just going through all those documents and getting all the facts straight. So I'm really glad you did that with this book because it is, like the reviewers say, truth is stranger than fiction type of tale. And yet we've seen it happen more than once. There's somebody just trying to blame the hero. <laughs> and even if it was a human error, it doesn't take away the heroic action of saving the plane after all. Yeah, uh, and uh, of course I interviewed passengers, and uh, those interviews are also on my website, um, clips of those interviews. Are you familiar with the program Scrivener? No. Well, Scrivener is a writing tool, and what Scrivener allows you to do is it allows... See, I mean, I had all these different elements. I had the interviews. I had all the documents. um, I had all the investigative documents. So normally it would be a difficult task to kind of piece this all together. Mm -hmm. But with this tool, Scrivener, I was able to... Actually, the book was not written in a linear fashion. I'll give you one example. Let's say that I'm talking about the first few days of the investigation, 
and I want to talk to an Alpa union representative who lives in Chicago. So I may fly up to Chicago and do an interview on him. And I get back and I go through my videotape. I'll put a videotape, a video clip up on my website. And I'll start writing notes from that interview. And then I'll shape those notes into a narrative. But my next interview might not be with, with somebody who wasn't involved with the investigation until eight years later, just because of the scheduling. So I'll fly out to uh, Phoenix and I'll interview someone in Phoenix. I'll get back and I'll do the same thing. I'll take my notes, I'll write them in narrative, and I'll put them in Scrivener. And then what Scrivener allows me to do is after I've gone through this process, then I can start rearranging them like a puzzle and, and oh. I put everything in a linear fashion. So that's why the first book took five years and this one only took three and a half. That's a good tip for me, actually. I'm going to look into that because um, I have tape and what I came, I came out with uh, was a 100-page outline and that 100-page outline of the entire story of my parents growing up in World War II and all that stuff, adventure came out to, it's a book series that I've been working on. And thank God they're still alive, and they actually just moved in with me uh, here in Texas. So I, in Texas? Where in Texas are you at? Yeah, I'm in Austin. Oh, okay, because I'm up in Dallas. In Dallas, I know. I, <laughs> I did my homework. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely look into Scrivener. I think, I think you'll find that a, a very useful tool. I sure will. And writers that are listening should um, look into it, too. We're getting close to the end of the show, but I, there's a couple of questions that I really want to ask you. I want to know what your thoughts on self-publishing versus independently published Well, I am so glad are. you asked that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. First of all, I do not self-publish, all right? I mm -hmm. independently publish. Here's the difference. A self-published book is a book that you go out and you print uh, at Kinko's and put in a three-ring binder and how to hand out to your friends. That's a self-published book. An independently published book goes through the same editorial process that, that any book from a major publisher would go through. It has the same design elements. It has the, from the cover to the interior, the same proofing, the, the copy editing that a, a book from a major publisher uh, will go through. Mm -hmm. The only difference is I didn't go through a major publisher. And you made the risk. <laughs> I, I, right. I, I take on the risk and I get all the reward for doing that. But your listeners should consider it this way. Well, here, here's two things about that on that subject. One, I've never purchased a book based on who published it, and mm -hmm. I don't think anybody else has. And two, if the book is the same quality as, as a major publisher, it shouldn't make any – oh, I know what I wanted to point out was the fact that um, you have independent films, all right? People go and watch independent films – just because it's not released by MGM or, or Sony or some other major studio doesn't make it any less of important of a film. Mm -hmm. I agree, and I'm glad that you actually brought that up because that's one thing that I always try to first-time publish authors that I get to do publicity for. I, I try to make them understand that the reason that they're independent is not to be self-published. It is to publish their book, to get their message across, and it should be a business thought plan for it with the timing, with the deadlines, with the goals, with everything, so that it is successful and they get their message across. Well, you know, if you invest, even if you're doing fiction like you're writing, and you invest three years of your life writing a story that you're proud of, and you go to shop it and the agent say, well, you know, the market's not big enough, and you have to have a market of 50000 or more, and you don't have a, I can't think of the word right now. The, the platform. platform. 
the platform. <laughs> you don't have the platform. So a celebrity uh, who writes a book about uh, uh, Kim Kardashian, uh, she put out a book called Selfies. I mean, <laughs> the whole book is nothing but her doing selfies. <laughs> you know, and she got like a $2 million advance on it. You know, if you have a story that you invest that much time in, go ahead and make the effort to get it out there. And there, yeah. there's so many avenues to do it. I mean, even if you only did ebook, and the, and the cost of doing audio, we we haven't talked to audio, but the cost of doing audio has come down drastic. In fact, I'm in the process now of, of turning my first book into audio download. Yeah, I'm glad that you're using all different formats. What is the big lesson that you want readers to get from this book? That the NTSB investigators, well, let's put it this way, investigators are human. Just as you have wrongful convictions and you have dedicated individuals looking into a crime, but yet they develop a theory of the crime and they spend all their time and effort with in tunnel vision trying to fit the evidence to that crime and excluding evidence that points away from their theory, that's what happened in this case. And that's what makes this story so remarkable is that it, it parallels a wrongful conviction all the way from the tunnel vision of the investigators to incorrect eyewitness testimony. So if they come away with anything, I hope they come away with becoming a fan of nonfiction because <laughs> to me, uh, nonfiction is just so much more compelling because you know that what happened is true. It is. In, in my opinion, when you read a nonfiction book in biographies and memoir as well, it is firsthand history. Yeah, like, like you know, yeah, I'm, I'm it, it is brain. because everything we do is really history, whether it's a personal little uh, in my own bubble or or it affects the entire world in one event, um, it, it or it affects just passengers and in in a and a crew in a in an airplane. Because from this type of events, policies and rules and laws come out and regulations and procedures and protocols, everything really come up as an effect of an incident. So well, that, that is true, except in this case, like I said, the, well, remember I, I mentioned that there were a couple petitions for reconsideration to the NTSB, mm -hmm. and the NTSB didn't respond initially, and they were compelled to respond by lawsuit later on, and they denied the petition. Um, but there's still two open petitions, oh, and wow. they're, very, yeah. they're, they're very detailed. So if I had my wish of, of something happening uh, from the, the resu resulting from this book, it would be that the NTSB would uh, reopen the investigation and consider the petitions for reconsideration that are already before them. That's awesome. I'm going to close the interview with that note, and, and that's exactly what nonfiction books can do. <laughs> Hopefully. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for being here. And for our audience, check out Scapegoat at uh, EmilioCorsetti.com. I really encourage you to visit the website. It's a lot more than just uh, a book website. You have a wonderful blog that I read. Readers, you have to go to this uh, website. It's EmilioCorsetti.com. Thank you again for being with us, Emilio. Thank you. And to you listeners, thank you so much for being with us as always. And until next time.